One thing that I've discovered in life is that once you get imprisoned once, going into prison is frightening. When you get out, you are emboldened. Nothing else scares you. So for me, they've done it. The only thing, the next thing that they could do was to kill me. That's Trevor Nube, my guest today. Trevor is a media icon in Zimbabwe and Southern Africa. He's managed, owned, edited, and written for some of the biggest newspapers in the region. Today, among other things, he runs a hugely successful YouTube channel, In Conversation with Trevor. He's put his freedom on the line for his belief in a free and independent press, and was once imprisoned by Robert Mugabe for a story he published. I'm hugely inspired by Trevor and his bravery, but also his humility. His story is an incredible journey, and I really hope you'll enjoy today's chat. So Trevor, thank you very much for joining me today. It's a real honor to have you on the show, and I really appreciate it. I mean, you know, you're known in Zimbabwe for your sort of your work as a publisher, as an editor, as a journalist, and for your YouTube channel. But um, if we may, I just want to go, I just want to go back a little bit to your, to your childhood and start sort of, you know, you were born in 1962 in Bulawayo. And from all accounts, it was quite a hard childhood. And I wondered if you could talk about that a bit and what it was like growing up in Zimbabwe, it was, well, then Rhodesia, and the impact that had on you. Thanks, thanks so much, Tim, and uh, um, you know for this opportunity. Yes, I was I was born in Bulawayo, um, Pilo Hospital, uh, in 1962, and um, to where uh, my mother was a domestic worker, my father was a domestic a domestic worker, uh, and the it was uh, a tough upbringing um, where we would we didn't have uh, you know three square meals uh, every day. Um, and then because my both my parents were working, um, I had to go to uh, do my grade one, two, three, four, five in the rural areas with my grandmother um, so that uh, both parents could be able to work. Uh, and that was a tough uh, life also. My grandmother and my grandfather were, you know, uh, peasant uh, uh, farmers, as it were. And uh, we lived uh, uh, hand-to-mouth uh, kind of existence. Uh, walked to school barefoot. Uh, I remember my mother buying me my first pair of shoes. I think I was doing grade three. And because I wasn't used to shoes, uh, I actually forgot uh, the pair of shoes under a tree and went home. And when I, when I got home, my grandmother said, where, where are your shoes? I said, oh dear, I forgot them because I wasn't used to wearing shoes. And uh, the oh, next wow. day when I went, uh, uh, the, the pair of shoes uh, had, had gone. So it was a tough uh, kind of existence, but um, one that uh, teaches you humility uh, and uh, quite a lot of uh, useful values. Uh, you know, hard work, uh, respect for elders, uh, and never taking anything for granted and appreciating it uh, when you do make it in society. And then at grade six, uh, I moved to uh, uh, Magogo Primary School to go and do my grade six, my grade seven, and then um, Zeligazi High School uh, for form one up to form six. And Trevor, when you were growing up, I mean, it was, it was still Rhodesia then, it was still white minority rule. What opportunities were there for, for someone like you growing up in the rural area? I mean, did you ever dream that you'd sort of one day become an editor of newspaper, one day b 
become a publisher and uh, was that was that an op- option you saw in your in your future no i mean it's it's uh, i think at that early part of my life as you can imagine growing up with a dad who is a domestic worker uh, and mom was a domestic worker going out in living in the rural areas with your grandparents uh, out in the sticks a very tough life was sleeping on the floor no bed uh, my dreams, uh, you know, I, I cannot recall uh, having dreams of any sort. But when I moved back into the city and um, uh, in Maguego Township, we had a two-roomed house. Uh, the kitchen uh, doubled up as uh, my parents' bedroom. The lounge uh, doubled up as our bedroom at night. Uh, and uh, I started, my, my, my father, who cycled every day to work and back, um, started bringing me newspapers. Uh, I don't think he intended to, for me to read the papers. It was just, you know, papers brought, brought home. So he started bringing me newspapers, uh, bringing papers, old papers at home. And I started reading these newspapers. I think I was doing, I must have been primary education. Yeah, primary education, six, so grade six, seven, uh, and then uh, transitioning to form one. I started reading those newspapers. And I, find, I, I found myself attracted to stories that had to do with uh, uh, politics, uh, diplomats, and that kind of stuff. And I started keeping... Uh, uh, you know, what is equivalent of Facebook now, which is, uh, uh, you know, old exercise book where I would cut out pictures and stories and paste them. And my interest was, you know, I, I followed people like uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, Sirens Vance and, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, American presidents and, and uh, Kenneth Count and all that kind of stuff. I, I was drawn to those, th- to those things. And I, I told people that my first dream uh, actually was to be a bus driver because sitting in the township seeing this guy driving this big thing i mean i, I said like wow i mean how it must take something to do that and changing gears you know it impressed me so you can imagine how how limited my my dreams were and then there's a guy who was doing form 6 when I was starting out my Form 1, uh, that, I think my, big, my dreams started expanding beyond just being a, dry, a bus driver. I looked at this guy who was, um, uh, I think was doing uh, Form 6, Form 5, Form 6 at Popoma High. Uh, I started going to Mzilikazi High and I looked at him and I admired him, the way he was dressed and the way he looked. And for some reason, uh, I also admired a disc jockey, uh, James Makamba, he's still alive. And I, I, I share with him the fact that he inspired me. I wanted to be a disc, disc jockey. I wanted to be a, uh, uh, a disc jockey on, on, on radio and so forth. So from being a, wanting to be a driver, I wanted to be a disc jockey. And then uh, uh, I wanted to be uh, an ambassador, a diplomat uh, for my country at some point. And for, for both those dreams, disc jockey, I tried it and I was put off by somebody who told me that uh, I didn't have the voice for radio. Uh, that broke my heart. 
and I, I had to walk away from that. And then secondly, I tried to be a diplomat by trying to join the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, I went for, for, for tests when they were recruiting examinations and so forth. And because I had been a, uh, a political activist when I was at the University of Zimbabwe, I was disqualified from that. So my dream of a di being a diplomat, diplomat went, went out through the roof. And here I am talking to you. <laughs> and then, so, so how did you get into journalism after, after all that? What was your, your path into journalism? I mean, were you, a, were you a good student? Were you academically sort of drawn towards writing? No. Uh, but actually, it's, it's fascinating uh, how I got into, into journalism. My, uh, when I was doing my uh, uh, Bachelor of Arts Honours in Economic History, and which I passed, by the way, with a first class, one of my lecturers uh, said to uh, a lecturer in the senior common room as they were having some, some beers, that uh, when he heard that uh, I'd gotten a job as a reporter at the Financial Gazette, he said, I am surprised that he got that job because the man cannot write a sentence to save his life. That summarizes just the fact that I did not have the skills to, uh, to, 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 to get into journalism. I, couldn't, I, I had problems in writing, but I passed with the first class. I then later on discovered that uh, uh, I'm actually dyslexic. Uh, okay. That uh, it took me more time than anybody than everybody else around me uh, to read, to write, to spell, because I've got this condition um, which was not diagnosed until quite uh, late in my life. But you asked me how I got into journalism. I became a member of uh, the Zimbabwe Economic Society, and uh, they had a meeting, and I became. Uh, I was pretty active in, in, in the debate of uh, a Pan-African uh, meeting of uh, economists from, from around the continent. And after the two-day or three-day uh, meetings, the Zimbabwe Economic Society was approached by the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation to say, we enjoyed the conversations that took place during this meeting. Can we run a series of discussions on television? Then one of uh, the, uh, the, the, the leaders in the Zimbabwe Economic Society, Nigel Chanakira, who is now a, a leading businessman, ent entrepreneur, and so forth, approached me with, with a group of people and said, Trevor, we want you to anchor this show. I'd never appeared on television, never been a journalist in my life. To cut a long story short, um, I anchored that show. It became a successful uh, series for 13 weeks until somebody decided that it was successful and they uh, elbowed me out of it. I remember the first show, uh, and I, I wish I could get the images of, those, of that show. I was sweating. I'd never been in front of uh, television cameras. And there <laughs> Must have been I was. nerve wracking. Oh, nerve wracking. Absolutely nerve wracking. So that, that's, 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 that was my first um, uh, 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 contact with journalism. And then the second thing, uh, a group of Zimbabwean businessmen, Elias uh, uh, um, Kahari, and Elias Rusike rather, and uh, Mr. Kahari uh, uh, and Mr. Mawati by the Financial Gazette, 
and decide that they want to ease out the white editor. And because they had seen me on television, they had hunted me from the University of Zimbabwe where I was doing my Master of Philosophy stroke uh, DPhil. Uh, and this was at a time when my life was at a crossroad. I'd just been given a scholarship by the University of Calgary in Canada to go and do uh, a PhD. I could not raise the air, the air, I could not fund the air ticket. Um, and I was offered this job by the Financial Gazette to become an assistant editor. And uh, instead of going to Calgary to study for a PhD, I opted to go to the Financial Gazette and become an assistant editor. Again, never having gone to uh, a, a, a school as a, as a journalist, then I became assistant editor. And then the next thing, I became the editor of the Financial Gazette for seven years until I was fired. And that's, uh, that's an amazing journey. And I want to talk about uh, your, your firing. I mean, that was politically motivated, right? I mean, you were fired because you, you stood up to Mugabe, basically. Um, I mean, could you, could you talk about that a bit? Yes. I mean, I, I had been having um, uh, uh, difficulties with my publisher, uh, Mr. Rusike, who uh, had been generous and, 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 uh, by offering me this job. But after a relationship of uh, seven years or so, uh, the f six years, five, six years, he started complaining that the, I had turned the Financial Gazette into an anti-establishment, anti-Robert Mugabe uh, uh, newspaper. And he would come to me and tell me, call me rather, and tell me that, uh, you know, his friends were saying this about the newspaper. He thought the story wasn't... Uh, 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 was uh, was anti Robert Mugabe. You know this editorial was not was anti Robert Mugabe, and he wanted me to toe the line. But uh, I I I resisted that, not in an aggressive kind of manner. But my view was, uh, you know, you hired me to do a job, and I'll do that job. But what what brought the matter to a head was uh, starting first of all by publishing a story on Robert Mugabe marrying Grace Mugabe. Uh, we didn't, uh, we might have gotten some of the facts not right. Uh, and that case ended up in court. And, and uh, the police, I think this was deliberate. They made sure that my uh, CEO was arrested. I was arrested. My deputy editor was arrested. So for the CEO spending time in jail because of the story that I had published. And by the way, the story that caused problems, uh, also, so let, me, let me move on and say, so that, that really upset him. So we, we, we were found guilty for criminal uh, libel, uh, uh, for libeling a judge because we claimed that the judge was witness to the wedding. We claimed that some minister was, was witness to the wedding and they denied it. And it was difficult for us to pin, to pin them down. And the, the story had been written by my editor. So that was the, the thing that really, uh, I think for me in my publisher's mind, uh, my CEO uh, then was out to look for a reason how to, uh, to jettison me and to get rid of me. Then I, Reuters runs a story of Robert Mugabe flying to um, uh, Lesotho for a uh, frontline summit meeting. 
And that story, that Reuters story, if I remember correctly, said that uh, President Robert Mugabe, um, uh, you know, persuaded his pilot to lend ahead of somebody else. And it became a big story. I mean, if, if, I think if somebody were to Google it, you'd find it. So I, I read that story. It was a Reuters story. It was not our original story. I happened to, to, to be driving to Bulawayo and um, uh, spending time with my parents. And my secretary on Monday calls me and says, I think you're in trouble. You should come back. I said, what's the problem? I said, no, you need to come back. Uh, the, the CEO is not, is not happy with you. I got there and I was summoned to, the, to his office and he said to me, you are suspended for three months without, without pay because of the story. But I said, this story, and by the way, George Charamba, who was a government spokesperson at that time, and others, they started making noise, you know, uh, this publisher must get rid of this guy because this guy is anti-Robert Mugabe. And it was clear that my publisher had been leaned on. There, there's a fact also that, uh, you know, is out in the public. And that fact is that at that particular time, the newspaper that I worked for, owed. Uh, had taken out a loan, I think, of about 40 million uh, Zimbabwean dollars from Zimbank, which was a government bank. And they were threatening okay. not to, uh, uh, rather threatening to call in the loan unless the publisher got rid of me. And um, yeah, and then they got rid of me. I managed to negotiate uh, 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 an, an exit of some sort, uh, which is basically a three months salary uh, and, uh, and you walk, and that, that's what happened. And I stayed home for, for two months uh, without a job. I thought of going to South Africa. Uh, um, I was interviewed by the Sunday Times. I was interviewed by the, uh, the Star. I was interviewed by the, I wasn't interviewed by the uh, Mail and Garden, but I was interviewed by uh, the uh, Financial Mail, the the Sunday Times, I can't remember which, which other title uh, interviewed me, but I didn't get the job. Um, and then um, got into partnership with um, uh, Clive Murphy and Clive Wilson uh, to start the Zimbabwe Independent. And that was my journey uh, into becoming a publisher. That's, uh, you know, Trevor, I mean, you say that matter of factly, but I mean, making an enemy of, of Robert Mugabe is not something a lot of people would, would want to do. You know, I mean, it, it was a dangerous thing. And I mean, you said you were put in prison at one stage, you had your, your passport taken away from you. Could you, you know, there's something, uh, I just digress slightly, I've watched your TEDx talk, and you say, you know, I'm a coward, and Mugabe made me, you know, Mugabe made me sort of brave. There was one stage where, you know, he stopped people selling newspapers on the side of the street. So you went out and sold newspapers. I mean, firstly, like, I think you're incredibly brave. Could you talk a bit about that, about making an enemy out of a dictator and, and, and the impact that had on your life and, and, and the bravery you had to sort of show to, to carry on publishing? You know, it's, um, I, 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 to, to me, I was doing something that I was passionate about. I was doing something that was right, something that was principled, something that, that I strongly believed in. For me, it was not about courage. Uh, it's very interesting. For me, it was interesting when I met people and people say, you must be crazy. Why are you doing this? And I looked at them and like, but I'm doing the only thing I know what to do, which is to uh, follow my instincts, 
follow my beliefs and my principles, and you call me courageous. Uh, and, you know, I walk around in pubs. Uh, I, was, I was drinking uh, at that time. And uh, people say, why are you walking around without a, a, a bodyguard? I'm saying, but do, do I need a bodyguard? So you are doing what you enjoy doing. You are doing what you believe in. And as you are doing it, for you, it's got nothing to do with courage. For you, it's got nothing to do uh, with, with being out to, to, to um, make a point or anything. You're simply doing your job the best way you know how to do it. And the reaction results in you being seen as somebody who's bold, who's courageous, who's uh, anti-Robert Mugabe. No, I wasn't. I mean, uh, for me, the issue was about press freedom, human rights, freedom of expression, rule of law, constitutionality. One party state was not a right thing. One man dictatorship was not right. For me, those were the things that uh, I was, I was uh, uh, you know, uh, standing up against. And at that particular time when I was doing that, not so many people were principled and bold enough to stand up to Robert Mugabe. I did it because of the values and the principles that I cherished. And I am glad that through my small work with uh, a number of people, we ended up not having a one-party state. We ended up not having a one-man rule, although the man continued to, to be a dictator. But our journey towards being a democracy uh, cannot be written without my name in it. Yeah, amazing. I, I mean, was it a scary time, Trevor? I mean, you say you're out at the pub and you were, you were drinking, but on some level you must have been scared. You know, I mean, Mugabe had killed people who'd spoken out against him. He had imprisoned them. He had, they had disappeared. I mean, so on some level you must have been scared. Um, they, I think the, the best, the most scary bit is when I was um, the editor of uh, the Zimbabwe Independent and we had launched the standard. And my colleagues, um, Mark Chavunduga, who's late now, um, and his, his deputy editor, wrote a story about uh, a military mutiny and they were abducted and tortured for seven days by the military. And uh, the president actually addressed uh, the, the nation and he mentioned my name. I mean, he had mentioned my name uh, regarding his uh, marriage to Grace. You know, and, and if I remember to paraphrase him, you know, uh, Trevor Ngube and them write about my marrying Grace Ngabe. When they are busy uh, going for girls, nobody writes about them. And he mentions my name. And then he goes public uh, when, when the story by the standard about a military mutiny is, done, is, 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 is written. And he, he names my uh, partners, Clive Wilson and Clive Murphy uh, and Sarah Thompson. We had to go underground for three days. We had to come up with a plan of how do we survive and ensure that uh, 
they don't abduct us and torture us. Uh, the, the day that Mark Chavundua came out, I was one of the first people to go and see him. And I have never seen a man as terrified as Mark Chavundua. And I said to, he had been tortured. The story of his torture was, was, was harrowing. It was, it was uh, 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 blood-cutting stuff, uh, being, being beaten, uh, electrocuted uh, on his testicles and that, that kind of stuff. So he told me this story. I was in his house in Mount Pleasant. And, um, and he said, and when I got in, he said, Trevor, let's close the curtains. They are watching us. Let's draw the curtains. They are watching us. So we drew the curtains and I sat down with him. And he said, Trevor, they said, if I talk, they're coming for me and they're coming for my parents. I shouldn't talk. I said to, to, to Mark Chabuntuka, Mark, you cannot afford not to talk. You have to talk. The world must know that they did this to you. I managed to persuade him. And after that, uh, he got the, the guts and the courage to talk. One thing that I've discovered in life is that once you get imprisoned once, going into prison is frightening. When you get out, you are emboldened. Nothing else yeah. scares you. So for me, they've done it. The only thing, the next thing yeah. that they could do was to kill me. And, and so I said to, to, to Mark Chavuduga, Mark, they, if you keep quiet, they will have succeeded. And what they want to do is to intimidate you, to make you keep quiet. And I promise you, after that, Mark became so strong, actually becoming extreme, you know, because we are so angry. That's the other thing that yeah. dictators don't realize. You make heroes out of common people who are just trying to, uh, who are doing their work. And that's what they did with me. That's what they did with Mark Javuduka. And every time a dictator throws somebody in prison, they're recruiting for the other side. They're not intimidating the person that they've thrown into, into jail. Mm. Yeah. So Trevor, I mean, it's a, it's a harrowing story. And, you know, I think when Mugabe went, there was a lot of hope in Zimbabwe that Emerson Namagago would come in and there'd be change. And I know you were brought in as, a, as an advisor on, on some level, but recently there's sort of been this Zimbabwe Lives Matter and there's been a repression, repression of the press and we've seen people imprisoned. Could you, could you talk a bit about that and what your hopes were for when Mugabe was overthrown and how they've sort of, how they've sort of borne out, I guess? Well, you, you, I, I, you're correct. I was appointed by President uh, Emerson Nagago as onto the Presidential Advisory Council. I'm actually the Deputy Chairman of uh, the Presidential Advisory Council. Um, but that doesn't stop me from speaking out. Uh, being appointed uh, uh, to, to be a presidential advisory council, for, as far as I'm concerned, was not a way of, uh, of silencing me. And I made the president uh, yeah, no. uh, uh, aware of that, that uh, you know, I'll continue speaking out because he appointed me because he noticed me uh, speaking out. I've got a constituency, I have a reputation uh, that I've built over the years and nothing is going to keep uh, silence me. Um, you know, we, when President Mnangagwa, uh, the coup happened, uh, you know, he got into power with the help of the military. Uh, I was hoping and believing that this is a man who had a partner with Robert Mugabe 
since independence. And that this man was aware of the many things that Robert Mugabe had done wrong with Zimbabwe, in Zimbabwe, against Zimbabweans. And I was persuaded in, in, in my heart, in my spirit, that he was coming in to leave a legacy, a legacy of correcting all the wrong things that Robert Mugabe had done, a legacy of uh, making right the wrong things that he and Robert Mugabe had done. I was absolutely persuaded. I thought that is what, that is what he was going to do. And what did this, for me, what does this mean? First of all, I apologize to the people of Matebeleland against what, what happened uh, with Kukuraundi because he, he, was, he, was, he was part of the government when that thing happened. Yeah. Uh, make restitution, um, ensure that the victims of, of, of Matebeleland massacre the Kukuraundi, um, those surviving get birth certificates, you know, they get some assistance to get on with their lives. Death certificates for some have, not still, have still not been issued. But come out and provide leadership and apologize to the people. Very, very important. And I've spoken to a lot of people. They want an apology for us to move as a nation. This, this wound cannot be left to be festering. I thought uh, President Mnangago would, uh, uh, you know, be uh, different from Robert Mugabe when it comes to human rights. He's a man who's known to be against uh, the capital punishment because he was uh, uh, destined to be uh, a victim of capital pun punishment, and that, uh, but he was saved from going to the gallows. And that, and that, was, that was under Rhodesian yes, rule. Yes, and, and he, yeah. he, as a result, got to, 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 to be persuaded that capital punishment, death penalty is not a right, right thing. So with those kind of things, I, be, I thought this is a man who would uh, do right by Zimbabweans when it comes to human rights, transparency and accountability, that we would have an opportunity to have uh, a different country. And these are the things that persuaded me to, to say, I can, I can work for my country by helping the president in the advisory, uh, in the advisory council um, so that uh, we, we help build the country. Uh, our country is in a, in a bad state. Um, the opposition is in a bad state. The ruling party is in a bad state. I can't, as a, as a citizen who is as prominent as me, decide to sit this out. Hence my participation in the Presidential Advisory Council. Okay, understood. And how are you, what are your sort of hopes, I guess, for Zimbabwe? I mean, do you see any sort of green green shoots coming through at the moment? Or is it with this, with COVID and with the repression, is it all sort of bad news? Well, I think at the moment it's, it's all sorts of bad news. And I think we are, we are on a precipice as a nation uh, because COVID has uh, uh, exposed the weaknesses in our nation, just like it has done throughout the world. It has accentuated and exposed our fault lines as human beings all across the world. Racism, inequality, um, poverty, uh, uh, and all those kind of things. And we need to deal with them. Zimbabwe is in no capacity to deal with these issues. And the opposition is not in a good position uh, to provide the leadership that Zimbabweans face. Hence, the Zimbabwe Lives Matter hashtag 
which is a movement by Zimbabweans uh, all across the board, which is currently leaderless, um, as, 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 as it were. It's a reflection of the disaffection by Zimbabweans when it comes to the opposition and the ruling political, uh, political uh, ruling party, ZANU-PF. The levels of corruption, the uh, human rights abuses, uh, the abductions and tortures that are happening uh, so frequently, the callous approach to the issues of uh, uh, observing rule of law, and the breakdown in law and order uh, that we're witnessing in the, in the country. So we, we are in a bad space. We need, as a people, to find each other. And we need, as a people, to create a space where we can have the difficult conversations about how we get on. And I, I'm being persuaded that progress is not going to be made via the ballot box. Progress is going to be made by Zimbabweans sitting around the table and speaking honestly about the Zimbabwe that we want. Deciding what it is that we need to do to get to the Zimbabwe that we want. I am not convinced that the opposition political party were, were there to get into power tomorrow. They would, they would behave in any manner that's different from ZANU-PF. So the choice that Zimbabweans are presented with is a Hobson choice, which is not a choice at all. And those of us who are interested in building a new country are saying, let's press the reset button. Mm. And that reset button is, what should have happened almost like the Lancaster House, or what should have happened around the uh, Kempton Park talks in South Africa? That's the conversation that we need to have. Why am I saying that the opposition is, not, is, is, is incapable of being different from ZANU-PF? It's the way they speak, it's the way they behave, it's the violence and intolerance in the opposition camps, it's the lack of uh, uh, respect for their own constitution. So they are not Democrats in the opposition. They are not Democrats in the, in the ruling party. But Zimbabweans want to make progress. But these two organizations, which do not represent the majority of Zimbabweans, are setting the agenda. It's about time that Zimbabweans who have an interest, who are nonpartisan, but have an interest in a different kind of Zimbabwe, step up and provide a peaceful platform, like I'm saying, equivalent to what happened to the Kempton Park, where we are, we are so divided. You'd think there's a civil war. The, 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 the things that you see around us, might convince you that we have a civil because we are at war with each other. And that cannot, it, it will, for me, it's not going to be stopped by having the next election. It's not going to be stopped by having an election in 2023. So on a practical level, I mean, how would you see that? How would you see that working? How would you see Zimbabweans coming together? Who would be involved in that? What sort of, what sort of people, what groups, what, what individuals? Well, they, 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 they are two schools of thought. You know, it's, it's either you have a uh, uh, Tyra Square kind of thing, what happened in Egypt. People get out and, uh, and protest until, until the place is ungovernable, what happened in South Africa. But that's, that's not an option for me because 
violence is not like water running from a tape where you switch on the tape and you switch it off when, when you want. When violence begins, when civil war begins, it's difficult to find the uh, turn off button. Yeah. For me, it's finding um, a group of citizens. The church is perhaps taking a leading role that is going to reach out to say, it's not about you to ZANU-PF. It's not about you to MDC. Constitutions are made by men for men and not the other way around. Let's sit down and chart a new way forward. That's going to allow us as a people, for our people and for posterity to realize their dreams. For this beautiful country of ours to join the community of nations as, as a country that we hoped it to be in 1918. It's not an easy thing, but in life, it's the difficult things that make us make progress. It's the torturous and painful uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission that the South Africans went through. I mean, it was, we don't, nobody, uh, we, we don't all agree that it, it got the desired results, but at least there was some truth spoken. And in certain quarters, some reconciliation yeah. are done. This country has never had an opportunity to speak about its dark past. And that dark past goes back to colonialism, to Ian Smith, to Robert Mugabe, to what happened during Robert Mugabe's days and what is continuing to happen right now. We pretend as if getting all along, uh, uh, along nicely. In the meantime, we are hurting and hurting people hurt others and we're hurting each other in a big way because we have not spoken about one the way the our liberation struggle was fought it was violent there's wounds from there we have not spoken about what ian smith did yeah. during the liberation struggle we have not spoken about those issues lancaster house did not provide yeah. space for us to speak about how the rhodesian army how the uh, the, the police force tortured and killed people during the liberation struggle. We haven't spoken about that. We have not spoken about how the liberation struggle was uh, prosecuted. We have not spoken about Okura Wundi. <laughs> 20,000 people were killed. We're pretending that these things did not happen. Yeah. But we have men and women, citizens walking, carrying those wounds. But much more importantly, we've got the people that have carried out these executions, these murders, these abuses in power, walking the streets of our, our, of our nation, continuing to use the same tools that they used during the Smith era, the liberation struggle during Gukura Wundi. How can we be normal people when we, when we are failing to face our, ourselves in the mirror and decide what we want to look like? as far as our future is concerned. It's not going to happen. And there's nobody who's going to come from heaven in as much as I pray as a Christian to come and do that for us. We've got to do that for us and for ourselves. And I believe, unlike many people, that it's not South Africa that must mediate. It's us. There are citizens in this country. Let's find a homegrown yeah. uh, solution of mediating amongst us, all of us, Business, the church community, the opposition political parties, uh, the civil society. Let's find 
and inclusive uh, process that enables us to speak about the wounds of the past and uh, provide a roadmap for healing and define the kind of people and the kind of nation that we want to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Trevor. Yeah, that's, you know, I mean, I guess if you look at, like you mentioned, South Africa and you look at Rwanda, you know, all these countries that have had traumatic pasts, they have had some sort of, they have looked at what's happened and they've addressed it and they've talked about it. And I guess that's something that hasn't happened in Zim and, and maybe, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe that needs to happen, but you touched on something there and I just wanted to, to go back. You, you mentioned your sort of faith and how you pray. Could you, could you talk about that a bit? I mean, I know you're, you're a born again Christian. How did that sort of come about? And does that give you the sort of strength to say the things you want and, and to not to say the things you want, but to talk without fear almost? Yeah, I, I've, I've been born again as a Christian now for all over um, 25 years. Um, the man that I was 25 years ago, I cannot recognize. Um, I'm a different person. I, uh, I, um, uh, I spend time with my Lord almost every day. I have a devotion every day. Uh, I pray. I read the Bible. I um, read the Bible. I've been reading the Bible from... Genesis to Revelations uh, once a year for almost the past seven years uh, so that I understand the word for myself and I meditate and uh, uh, I go to church um, and uh, I, I have uh, favorite uh, uh, television pastors. So I have uh, YouTube pastors that I listen to. Uh, you know, my, my journey with my God has been absolutely rewarding in terms of uh, helping me to be grounded, grounded spiritually, uh, to be principled and to be thoughtful in the things I do uh, and the things that I say. Uh, and um, I wouldn't be who I am uh, without, without God in my, in my life. Yeah, that's, and, and it gives you, you know, like you say, you, you read the Bible every day, so that gives you a routine. Is there anything else in your routine? I mean, I know you're, you're incredibly busy and you've got a lot going on is there is there anything i mean do you do you wake up at a certain time do you exercise is there anything else you do to sort of keep fit and keep going yeah i i have um you know for the past um 16 years i must say um i get up at 4 30 a.m in the morning wow. every day <laughs> um I, i'm doing gym from Five to six o'clock, uh, either walking uh, or running, or my little gym at home. Uh, I do cardio, I lift weights. Then after that, I go into my uh, uh, cubicle at home uh, to read the Bible in the first instance. Um, after that, I then pray. After praying, I do journaling. After journaling, I meditate for anything between five and 10 minutes that gets me grounded it gets me to reflect about what happened yesterday and it gets me to think about what's going to happen um the day ahead but it also helps me focus on the things that are troubling my spirit and, and troubling my mind uh that point of that place of quietness and solitude uh is the place where i meet myself uh and have a conversation with myself and is very clarifying it's the place where usually when I walk out of, I have, God has answered me spiritually 
regarding something that has been bothering me, a decision that I should have made, uh, I, uh, I found myself bolting out of there <laughs> because uh, I finally yeah. found the answer to the problem that, uh, that, uh, that uh, I've been facing. So that's the ritual that I have uh, every day. So from 4.30 from in the morning um, up to around about 7 o'clock, uh, that's the ritual. And so getting up to. at 4.30, what time do you go to bed? I mean, do you have a time you go to bed every day? Oh, yeah, I'm uh, early to bed. Yeah, um, so have to be, by, I guess. Um, <laughs> by 8 o'clock, um, I'm brushing my teeth, and by 8.30, I'm in bed. And the other thing that I do is um, I read about an hour before I fall asleep. So I, I, have, a bear, I have a book by my side um, that I'm reading, or two books that I'm reading at any, at any time. So uh, um, whilst I'm dyslexic, I, am, I love reading. Uh, quite a lot. I started reading late in life, but uh, ever since I discovered reading, uh, I, I, I rarely go to bed without having spent uh, uh, 30 minutes to an hour uh, read, reading a book. I believe that the last thing you do before you go to bed and the first thing you do after bed determines the kind of day and night that you're going to do and, and, and fashions uh, the kind of person that you're going to be, you're going to become, uh, and much more importantly, that um, spending time with ourselves, um, solitude is perhaps the most underrated, uh, rejuvenating, uh, uh, and, and 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 candid uh, conversation moment with ourselves. The people, the person that you need to speak to more often, is not the stranger uh, or the person next to you; is yourself. Because in most instances, the biggest uh, um, standing block to the things that you want to achieve is absolutely. yourself. Unfortunately, we don't spend we don't spend a lot of time with yeah, ourselves. Absolutely, yeah, I'd agree with that. Trevor, uh, you you spoke a bit about your passions. You spoke about news being a passion, and 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 sort of what other passions do you have? What else sort of drives you? So, um, so I, I'm passionate about young people, uh, mentoring young people. Um, and uh, so I have, a, I have a young people that I'm working with that I create time um, to, to help with whatever they're going through. These could be um, high school dropouts, could be people going to university, could be people starting out in their jobs or people starting out uh, in business. So I do have, in any given year, um, um, those kind of young people that I'm, that I'm working with. And some of them, actually, I work with until it's a life journey. Uh, they become uh, you know, part of my family because uh, uh, my wife gets involved. She loves, she loves it. The wives uh, call on us uh, to, 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 to be uh, their sounding boards and so forth. So I'm, I'm passionate about that. I also love... Um, uh, adult coloring. Uh, you know, I um, um, interestingly, you know, about um, seven years ago, my wife was deciding what to buy me for a Christmas present. And uh, she walked through uh, a bookshop in, in Centum and found this coloring book. And I don't know what made <laughs> her buy it. And she bought this coloring book. And we took out on our uh, going out to South Bloom. Uh, for uh, for uh, about three weeks or so. So I took the book out and I started coloring 
and I thoroughly found it uh, therapeutic, uh, very relaxing. And, and so it's something that I, I do from time to time. So I read, uh, I, do, I do coloring. Uh, I'm a football supporter. I love Arsenal. Uh, ex- oh, no, except for, except no. for this year, <laughs> this year has been oh, this year has been tough. I'm also uh, a Formula One fanatic. I love Formula One. I love racing. So my weekends are spent uh, uh, reading my Bible, sport, uh, sport uh, and uh, and and adult coloring. And the family, uh, my family is very important, very precious uh, in, in in getting me all properly grounded. Oh, good. It's funny. Arsenal, I mean, really are, are Africa's team, aren't they? Wherever you go in Africa, you'll find Arsenal fans. And I, I guess it's kind of because Arsene Wenger was, he was at the vanguard, really, of, of playing African players, mm. you know, um, bef- before anyone else really did. But yeah, I'm sorry about this season. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't great at all. Wasn't. I used to be a, a, a Liverpool supporter uh, because of uh, Bruce Grobler um, being a, oh, a Zimbabwe. Um, and like Anna Bulaway, yes, guy. I mean, uh, I used to see Bruce Grobler when I was very young uh, in Bulaway and Magwegwe. Uh, when when the Highlanders, the team that he was playing for, when they they won, they would come to Magwegwe because there was a, a bar which was very popular. So I would see Bruce Grobler there. Naturally, when he went to Liverpool, I supported Liverpool. And to the point that you made, uh, I started supporting Arsenal because of the many black players that were in, yeah. in, in Arsenal and uh, Arsene Wenger's uh, uh, management style. And uh, uh, also, you know, there, there's something about me that uh, tends to be partial to underdogs. Uh, so, and that, that's where it started. Great. So, Trevor, if, if someone wanted to find out more about you, I know there's your YouTube channel. How else, how else could they go about it? Well, I'm on Twitter um, as, as Trevor Nube. Uh, that's my, my Twitter handle. Um, I've got the YouTube channel uh, in conversation with Trevor. Um, so it's youtube.com uh, uh, forward slash uh, in conversation with Trevor. And I'm also on Facebook. I'm on Instagram also as Trevor Nube. Uh, I, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not great with LinkedIn. I don't know why, but uh, I, you find me on LinkedIn again as, uh, as Trevor. Great. Well, thank you very much, Trevor. That was really great to talk to you. Thanks, Tim, for the opportunity. Thoroughly enjoyed this. Thanks a lot. I really hope you enjoyed the chat today. I'm going to put the links to all Trevor's social media channels below, and I'll also add the link to his TED Talk. It's really worth a watch. Please do consider subscribing to Generation Africa and leaving a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Many thanks and until next time, goodbye.